Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 13 in our series for 2019. And today's date is Friday, April the 26th. First, I have a terrific interview with Fiona Reynolds, the CEO of PRI, the Principles of Responsible Investment. We'll be talking about what businesses should be doing about climate change. And then I'll be interviewing economist Nicholas Gruen. But first, let's talk to Fiona Reynolds. Fiona Reynolds, tell us about principles for responsible investment. So the principles for responsible investment, or the PRI as it's known, uh, we're a UN-supported organisation and we were really created out of the UN system to bring sustainability to capital markets. So we work with the largest investors in the world, getting them to incorporate environmental, social and governance factors into their investment processes. And so we have 2,300 signatories to our principles of responsible investment, and those signatories represent in US dollars about $83 trillion in assets under management. Who are some of these signatories? So if we look from an Australian perspective, then a lot of the large superannuation funds here, Australian Super, SEBA, HESTA, are all signatories to the PRI. Around the world, some of the largest pension funds like CalPERS, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, uh, some of the big fund managers like State Street are some of our, all our, our members. Basically, uh, super funds, pension funds, yep. are big supporters of it. Yes, and that's mainly because if you're thinking about environmental, social and governance factors, or say let's just take environmental issues, you're really thinking about things that are going to be happening over a long period of time. Pension funds, superannuation funds, invest over a long time horizons. For example, we're talking about CalPERS. Well, CalPERS invests with a 100-year time horizon. It's managing liabilities for its pension fund members over 100 years. So it has to think about what are all the things happening in the world that are going to affect my investment. Whereas if you're a day trader, you're not really, you're just looking at what am I going to make some money off today? You're not really thinking about a whole lot of other issues that might affect your your investments. Uh, right, okay, okay. And a lot of businesses have uh, cottoned onto this as well. Well, part of 
um, our principles. Principle two of the PRI is about active ownership. And so it's really about you being a good steward of the investments and the companies that you own. So pension funds are part owners in many companies around the world. They don't want to be trading stocks every day. They actually want to be invested in companies for a long period. They need to engage with those companies and make sure companies are making the transitions that they need. So if we think about the transition from a high carbon to a low carbon or zero carbon, we hope, economy, that happens over a long period. We, need, we as investors need to make sure that companies are actually making that transition. What are they doing about it? So companies understand from the shareholders engaging with them that shareholders are concerned about these issues and they want to see investors. Investors want to see companies taking action. One of the interesting things in Australia is you've now had the regulators, the ASIC, APRA, and uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia have actually nominated climate change as a key economic issue that could actually wreck an economy. Of course, we're heading into an election at the moment, and uh, climate change is going to be a major issue in this election. Well, I think climate change should be a major issue in this election. I think Australia is very behind most of the world, particularly behind Europe in its thinking about um, issues to do with climate change. And it's been caught up in far too much politics. It's great that APRA and ASIC and the Reserve Bank have finally come out on these issues. But, you know, I live in London and the Bank of England and um, came out and the regulators there came out on these issues years ago and have then driven a lot of, a lot of change. So I think Australia is playing a catch up. But it's better to be catching up at some point than not at all. So I'm pleased to see those organisations taking, making some noise about these things. But given the way Carney has led the Bank of England yeah. on this, and uh, as you say, England's uh, a lot of businesses are now catching up on this, do you, do you expect to see that phenomenon happening here with businesses catching up on this because of the role of regulators? Well, depending on what the regulators do, yes. So the regulators need to do more than just talk. They need to make sure that they are asking businesses, asking banks, asking investors, large investors, what they're doing. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. how they're managing climate risks. If they do that, then yes, I think they will, that, they, that they will. One of the things that Mark Carney has also been leading is the fact that 
we need good disclosure from companies and from investors about what they're doing on climate change and we need information that's in a financial form. So he formed the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures and that, that has been working with a group of investors, with companies around the world to try to come up with good metrics, good data, good ways of reporting on climate risk in a financial way. And I think that's having a big difference in the, making a big difference in the financial and the business world as well. And it is getting more traction. I've definitely seen though from where I sit, being working globally on these issues, that I think the Paris Agreement was one of the driving forces between about bringing change in companies around the world and investors, because finally, here was an agreement from all of the world that said this is the direction that we're heading in. And let's face it, companies and investors do need a bit of certainty about government direction, and that has definitely been lacking in the Australian market, and I think one of the reasons that we're behind where we should be. One of the reasons, surely, that Australia is behind is because of the politics of it. Uh, Notably, uh, one of our biggest exports is coal, and uh, that has framed a lot of the debate. Where do you see that travelling? So, yes, it has been a particular, particularly a political issue, and I understand the politics, but it's also an economic issue. It's also an environmental issue. And the fact is that the world is going to decarbonise. That is just what's going to happen. It doesn't mean it's happening. We're going to not invest in coal tomorrow. That's not what we're talking about. But over a longer period, we're not going. people are not going to be buying coal in the same way that they are. So... The Paris Agreement, all of the, you know, all of the international studies show that we need developed countries to be out of coal in 2030 and developing countries by 2050. So something is going to change. Australia needs to be thinking about this. What is it going to mean for its economy? What what is going to be the exports that we have of the future? We can't just put our head in the sand and say that this is not that it's not happening because it is happening and we need to be on top of the issues and I do think that in Australia we've lost 10 years plus of thinking about the future for example Australia's got lots of other minerals that it can sell the world it's not just it's not just coal and we're not giving up selling coal tomorrow but but where are we heading and if the world is not going to buy our coal because that's going to happen one day not tomorrow, not the next day, not even the next couple of years, but it is going to start to happen, then what do we do? We've seen lots of banks around the world, including in Australia, say that they won't fund any more coal-fired power plants. Why are they doing that? Because it's a bad business decision. Insurers who are saying we're not going to insure anything to do with coal. Um, We've seen investors who have pulled out of pure-play coal companies because they see these as bad business deals, a bad risk. So the economics are now catching up to the environmental issues that are there as well. And uh, as I said, these things are happening and we need to accept that they're happening and we need to plan for the future. So uh, this will be inevitable, you're saying? I believe it's inevitable, yes. Right, Okay. so we in Australia really need to start planning ahead. Yeah, we need to plan for the future. The future doesn't need to be such a terrible thing. The future can be fantastic. What are we doing about, what are the opportunities? What I often find 
in particularly in this country in, is that we talk about all the negatives rather than thinking about the positives. So it's not just the negatives about this transformation to a low carbon economy. What are the investment opportunities? What are the job opportunities for the future? What are the markets that will open up? What are the things that we will be able to export and sell? That's what we need to be thinking about and building and delivering. It's like this issue about electric cars I was listening to. I mean, electric cars policies have been announced, introduced across Europe years ago. It hasn't been met with all of this, you know, doom and gloom. It's been met with, right, well, what are the opportunities? So if we're going to, trans if we're going to have electric vehicles, which is going to happen around the world, then what are the opportunities for Australia? What are the minerals that we can sell? Again, because of batteries and all of the things that are required. Like lithium. Like lithium, yeah. Yes. So what what's the opportunity for us there in the export market? What, what can we be involved in in, ter in terms of the parts for cars that are going to have to be delivered? What about the infrastructure that's required if you're going for in a big country like Australia, if you're going to have electric vehicles? We're going to have to transform infrastructure so that you've got power stations, battery power stations, you can, you know, charge your cars. In other countries in the world where this transformation is underway, also lots of businesses have flourished around charging stations. So at the moment, because technology still has to develop, it might take you 40 minutes to charge your car. So there pops up a cafe or a restaurant so you can have lunch while you're doing it. Um, some Dry cleaners, because drop your, drop your clothes off to get dry cleaned or a laundromat or things like that. You know, good things happen in, transform in economic transformations. They just don't always have to be bad. But I do think, I do want to add that one thing we do have to do in, in all countries around the world is think about the communities that, that are coal mining communities and the workers that are there, because they shouldn't be left to pay the price for climate change. So... What are we doing about those communities? What are the new jobs? What's the new investment? We can't just wait. We can't just close things down and go, oh, well. Again, we need to be planning for the future for these workforces. And if we do it in a very planned way, there's great opportunities, but we don't have to leave people behind either. Fiona Reynolds, that's fascinating. And thank you very much for your Thank you. And now let's talk to economist. Nicholas Grier. Tell us about the report that you did for the Regional Australia Institute. So um, this was 2017 and we were asked to uh, we, we were asked by the Regional Australia Institute which is I found out a uh, on the last week a, a, a little outfit that was put together in the wake of the deal between Rob Oakeshott and Tony Windsor with Julia Gillard and they wanted more attention to regional issues because, of course, one of the great problems of the regions is that Canberra doesn't know much about the regions and Canberra's very good at rolling out one-size-fits-all programs and then they don't work. Uh, there, are little ch there are little differences between the way things work in different regions and this is a bugbear of all manner of policies. Um, uh, that, that includes welfare policies, social welfare policies, Aboriginal policy and so on. And so we did this report which basically drew attention to that fact that uh, that the centre in Canberra has lots of programs and even and, and, and sometimes it will do something like contract the programs out to private providers and the idea is that that will provide greater 
knowledge locally and everything will work better. But then the way they design the contracting out process means that it's all it goes back to one size fits all. And so we produced this report, uh, which in many ways I was using the kinds of ideas that I developed at the Australian Centre for Social Innovation, where uh, we had developed programs, for instance, or instead of social workers working with troubled families, for there to be mentors, uh, mentorship relationships between families that have been through tough times, uh, mentoring families that were going through tough times. What's that? What's the relevance of that to uh, providing? You know, trying to create better regional community, stronger regional communities, more jobs in regions, and so on. Well, the connection is that if you're going to run the kind of program that we developed for troubled families, you have to find new ways of governing it. You can't just run it, you can't just contract it out, you can't run it as if the people in Canberra know about the, you know, know what to do. You have to find a way to govern a process in which people are doing it for themselves uh, in regions in this case. So we produced a... Uh, we sort of set this out and we pointed out how the, one of the things that constantly is said in all these areas is that governments will do pilots and experiments and then it'll work out what works and what doesn't work and it'll expand the thing that works and it'll improve or kill off the things that don't work. Now, I'm sure that's familiar to you, Leon, but then now I've got a question to ask you. Name me one program that started as a pilot that grew into a national program. Now, maybe such things exist. I don't know of any. The only way that programs that have, the only way programs have scaled is not because somebody was doing something fantastic in Tennant Creek and it spread and governments helped it spread and now it's everywhere. The only way these things, these big programs, some of which work, have scaled is if a prime minister has said, I want, it, I want this to scale. So the example is land care, which Bob Hawke said, we, I want this to be a national program, and it became a national program. So the whole mechanism by which we tell ourselves that we're learning from the regions, we're doing small-scale experiments, and then we're scaling up, well, it's a nice theory, but we it seems we don't have the governance mechanisms in place to do it. What were the main deficiencies you identified? Uh, well, basically, we have uh, announceableitis. So governments exist to make announcements, um, and uh, they uh, and, and and so difficult problems are, are handled with announcements. Um, I, I, government's just constantly making announcements. I mean, I've just to give you an example, when Scott Morrison had recently become Prime Minister, somebody started sticking uh, metal in strawberries, which wasn't a very nice thing to do. And Scott Morrison made it all about him and, uh, you know, went into something must-be-done mode. And, and basically the things that he did were fairly farcical. The, the, this thing that was going on, was a state essentially a state matter? It was a law enforcement matter, uh, but politicians had to be present themselves as part of the solution. Um, so, so, so we get announcements of things, and then 
something else comes along. Let me give you an example. When Peter Beattie was the Premier of Queensland, he launched a thing called the Smart State Initiative, which sounded like pretty uh, it sounded like the usual kind of thing to me you know a few announceables but i was actually doing some work in innovation at the time and we were touring queensland and it seemed to me that it was working very well and then uh there was a handover to anna Bly, and i was up there you know six months after the handover and i started talking to pass said you know how's the smart state going and they said well it's not because anna Bly is uh, needed her brand on this initiative and so she didn't want to call it the smart state and she didn't just change the uh, or the Bly administration didn't just change the name for marketing that's harmless enough she changed it she wanted to put her stamp on it so she 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 funded much less capital and and more other things um now given that these these initiatives are kind of 10-year initiatives if you change them after a few years uh, and and then well, well you know that's basically disastrous. And we do this constantly in Aboriginal policy, in industry policy. We have to find ways to try to make our political system work as a system of planning and experimentation and doing the right thing, rather than getting on the telly and making another announcement. So what recommendations did your report make? One of the things we talked about was instead of various discrete initiatives like regulation review where you say we're going to stop over-regulation and then there's an over-regulation unit, we talked about working in labs, which has become quite popular over the last decade or so, where different parts of government work on a problem and try and solve it together. An example of this is that the Auckland Policy Lab uh, started looking at the age at which kids get licences and how that connects up to drinking and work and, uh, you know, uh, their, their first job and so on, and income. And so they all, and, 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 uh, and that brought in uh, questions of social policy. And so, all together, the police and social policy people and the community work on an understanding of the problem and some, some to often quite small tweaks that can work quite a lot better. And that brings government together solving problems and brings it together with the community, which has got a stronger capacity to actually be pulled through as a solution rather than just to be an announceable and then re-announced. Another thing we proposed is to try to use what institutions we have to bear on the honesty, the the sustained activity of government. So I suggested that we get the Auditor General to actually report. If we've got this theory that we're going to have lots of pilots and lots of experiments that we're going to build from there, then, then the Auditor General, an independent auditor, can report on how that system is going. In other words, how many pilots have there been? How many have worked? How many haven't worked? Uh, Which of the ones that seem to work are now being expanded? And so on. So so there were a range of of ideas like that. Well, that's good because uh, your recommendations would actually increase 
input from the community, the, that is the yep. outside, as opposed yep. to coming from the central point. Yep. And also, it would create some accountability with the Auditor General. Correct. We uh, The other thing that I talked about was this idea that we've talked about before, Leon, which is the Evaluator General, which is to say that I, 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 the way I now put this is that we separate the brains from the brawn. In other words, we separate knowing what we're doing from doing it. Uh, that's what we do, for instance, with the Parliamentary Budget Office. We have uh, the Parliamentary Budget Office produces completely independent reports on fiscal policy options. In other words, how much would it cost us to increase the pension? How much would it save us to, uh, you know, to not pay dividend imputation on uh, not pay di- uh, franking credits on um, self-managed super funds or whatever. And that that is quite independent of the particular policy that you're pursuing. So if you're pursuing some new policy in the regions to improve access to you know, uh, to use the example we used earlier, to improve access to driver's licenses by people who might need them for temporary purposes or something. You've separated out the measurement of the impact of that from the delivery of the program. Now, you actually want those two parts of the exercise to collaborate closely, but they report differently. And so the program has always got some independent benchmarks to try and mark itself against. It it doesn't produce them. And that measurement is then uh, subject to privacy and so on, uh, in principle, public measurement. So the community can see what's working and what's not working so well. And that's another way that we can place pressure on politicians, not just to make announcements, but to follow through with them uh, to stop programs that aren't working even though they said they would and to expand programs that um, that, that are working well. Well, that's fascinating and it uh, has a lot of implications for all sorts of regional policies, exactly. Aboriginal right. policies and yep. innovation policies. Exactly, absolutely. And uh, yeah, so, so, so the other thing was, that was quite exciting, I think, is that when I presented this, I guess I wasn't, I mean, somebody said to me, it's wonderful to have an economist who's so well-versed about regional issues. And I said to them I, I, at my next session at the conference, I said, I've got a confession to make. I'm not well-versed about regional issues. What I'm well-versed about is the soft tyranny of the centre. And this was quite galvanising. And I, it led me to the... I also had some discussions with some other people in Canberra and there's the big review of the public sector and... They're considering the Evaluator General, Andrew Lee from the ALP, is promising uh, something called an Evaluator General if the Labor Party get into power. And so the possibility becomes that maybe we start trialling that or start start um, uh, start its activities with some focus on uh, on regional issues. And one of the advantages of that is that local communities are going to buy into that. They're going to say, yes, we want, we're not just after pork barrelling. We're not just after, um, you know, in for our chop. We want programs that work to help our communities work better. Well, Nicholas Gruen, that sounds fascinating and uh, good on you. And thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, Australian inflationary pressures weakened further in the March quarter 
increasing the odds the Reserve Bank of Australia will cut official interest rates in the months ahead. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, headline consumer price inflation, or CPI, was unchanged in the three months to March, coming in at 0%. This saw the annual increase slow sharply to just 1.3%. Markets had been expecting a quarterly increase of 0.2% and a year-ended rate of 1.5%. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison has given an election pledge to help create 25,000 jobs next five years with an equity plan to help existing small and medium-sized businesses through an Australian Business Growth Fund. This will involve the government partnering with banks and providing small and medium business owners with equity needed for expansion without forcing them to give up control. Based on similar funds operating out of the United Kingdom and Canada, it will be seeded with $100 million of government money. And the tussle for Nine's regional publishing business is set to be played out between private equity firms Anchorage Capital Partners and Allegro Funds and former Domain Chief Executive Anthony Catalano. Sources close to the sale of Australian community media, which includes Illawarra Mercury and the Canberra Times, said there is a high probability final bids from each of the three potential buyers will be lodged by the Wednesday deadline. Speculation also abounds that a third private equity firm may enter the fray. Sources said the importance of regional titles to their respective communities and the demand for hyperlocal news across different publishing platforms made ACM attractive. Former Domain Chief Executive Anthony Catalano is one of the interested parties looking at bidding for ACM. However, the three bidders have been throwing plenty of questions at Nine about the regional businesses, which it inherited as part of its $4 billion merger with Fairfax Media in December 2018. Nine, publisher of the Australian Financial Review, declined to comment. Mr Catalano's bid is backed by Richlister and Thorny asset management billionaire Alex Weislitz. He's being advised by law firm Arnold Block Liebler and accounting and consultancy firm Price Waterhouse Coopers. Anchorage has enlisted the help of former ACM director John Angerley for advice, and Allegro brought in former Seven West Media Chief and Operating Officer and Bauer Media Chief Executive Nick Chan. The three bidders have been working with Nine and its advisor on the sale, Macquarie, for a number of weeks, including over the Easter long weekend. Former BRW Chief Executive and Managing Director of the Age, Stuart Simpson, had previously shown an interest in the regional publishing portfolio. An online retailer, Kogan, has unveiled solid March quarter sales growth and plans to sell cars alongside household goods, mobile phones, insurance, broadband and travel. Revenues rose 9.5% in the March quarter after soaring 46.1% in the year-ago period. No dollar values were provided. Gross transaction values, including sales through the new Kogan Marketplace, Kogan Mobile, Kogan Internet, Kogan Insurance and Kogan Travel, rose 17.5%. Earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and amortisation for the quarter jumped 96%, taking EBITDA growth for the nine months ended March to, to 15%. Active customer numbers rose 23% to 1.59 million, buoyed by the launch of the online marketplace during the March quarter and new verticals last year. And two freak weather events in Sydney and Townsville over the summer cost the Australian insurance industry a total of $2.4 billion in claims, the Insurance Council of Australia has revealed. A severe hailstorm in Sydney on December, which prompted the Insurance Council to declare a catastrophe, prompted a $1.271 billion worth of claims. The devastating February floods in Townsville, meanwhile, have so far resulted in 27,355 claims worth $1,132 billion. 
the Insurance Council said, bringing total losses from both events to $2.4 billion. The cost of these two disasters dwarfed the costs of the bushfires in Victoria's Bunyip State Park, which the Insurance Council said resulted in $19.6 million in insurance losses from 365 claims. Almost 95,000 motor vehicles were damaged or destroyed in the December hailstorm, while insurers received tens of thousands of home and contents claims with damages to roofs, guttering and walls, the most common causes. The potential insurance costs of a hailstorm were immediately apparent to insurers, who within hours had declared the event the costliest of the year. Suncor and IAG each gave it special attention in their half-year results in February. IAG said insurance margins fell 4.3 percentage points to 13.7%, largely as a result of a spike in claims following the Sydney hailstorm. As of February, the cost of a storm came in at $110 million above IAG's natural hazards allowance. The hailstorm also contributed to some cause exceeding its natural hazards allowance for the period, prompting the Queensland-based insurers to put aside an additional $100 million for the next financial year and buy an additional $200 million in reinsurance. And financial services giant Macquarie Group is preparing to enter the telecommunications market with the launch of a mobile business in a surprise move, likely to ramp up competition in an already fiercely competitive sector. The new business, called New Mobile, will specialise in mobile phone plans that are bundled with used handsets. The model, which is cheaper than buying new smartphones on a plan, is popular in the United States, but is yet to take off in Australia. New Mobile will not own its own mobile infrastructure, instead reselling access to Telstra's mobile network. That will class it as a mobile virtual network operator, putting it in the same category as players such as Amazon, TPG, Focus and Kogan in a $750 million a year market. But unlike its NVNO competitors, which increasingly have favoured the SIM-only model, New Mobile will only sell mobile plans bundled with used smartphones, Macquarie already leases more than a million smartphones to mobile retailers, which lease them on to customers. The terms of these leases require customers to return the phones after one or two years, meaning Macquarie already owns a large number of used smartphones. And Grandcore is headed for loss-making territory on its core business as it pushes ahead with plans to demerge highly valuable globe-malting assets to create a big new ASX-listed agribusiness. The company, which remains a target of a stalled $3.3 billion takeover bid from Tony Shepard-led long-term assets partners, said its grains business had taken a big hit from international trade tensions and continuing drought in eastern Australia. It warned investors that the grains division was likely to suffer a $40 million blow in terms of earnings before interest taxation, depreciation and amortisation for the half year to March 31. Graincore did not give earnings guidance for the division, but analysts said it appeared headed for a substantial loss, which will add to concerns about the outlook for what remains of the company following any spin-off or sale of the malt business. The grains division contributed $68 million to full-year EBITDA in 2017-18, down from $206 million the previous year. The 2017-18 results reflected drought on the East Coast, but conditions have become much worse over the past year in terms of grain production. And Amcor, is poised to offload $300 million worth of packaging assets in the United States to Techniplex Inc. It's expected the deal should placate US competition regulators and pave the way for a clear run towards the shareholder meetings on May the 2nd and the completion of a $9 billion BEMIS acquisition by May 15. The transaction involves the sale of healthcare packaging plants in Milwaukee, in Wisconsin, Ashland and in Massachusetts and part of a plant in Madison in Wisconsin. All up, the businesses being divested generate revenues of about US $100 million. And that's it for this week. 
And next week I have a fantastic interview with Rob Lambert, the CEO of Flowers Across Australia. It's a fascinating company. The team behind Flowers Across Melbourne, who set out to completely disrupt the flower industry 10 years ago, announces it has quadrupled the size of their business in five years, averaging growth of 42% year-on-year in that time, and now employ 40 staff. The directors are a married couple, Rob being the tech e-commerce genius who thought himself to code, and his wife Nadina, a florist. Flowers across Melbourne are one of the biggest florists in Melbourne and have one of the largest ranges of flowers and plants in Australia. The team has sent out 300,000 plus bouquets and arrangements since its inception. They have two sister companies based in Melbourne, Plants Across Melbourne and Hampers Across Melbourne, as well as a branch in Sydney called Flowers Across Sydney. As well as managing the four e-commerce website, Rob has also custom-built his own app, which tracks employee KPIs and happiness via the apps. That's all the florists use across the company. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering, analysing Australia's latest unemployment figures and the country's CPI. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ, and on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 